You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we are following Jesus and learning what it means to take on His yoke. We are pressing into His promise of true life. Well, good morning. Good morning. My name is James Fields. I serve here as lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. And it is an honor and deep, great privilege to be with you this morning as we continue in our study in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, this morning, as Naomi just read, we'll look at verses 12 through 17. So feel free to open your Bibles or look into your phones if you need to, uh, to be able to follow along with us this morning as we look at God's Word together. Amen? Amen. Amen. So last week, we discussed how Jesus deliberately shows himself as a Messiah. And we talked about that, the way that he did that in three ways. He said that Jesus showed himself as our prophet. He showed us himself as our priest. And last but definitely not least, he showed himself as our king. We said that he came into Jerusalem deliberately last week in order to fulfill prophecy. This was an enactment and a way of him showing us to be our prophet. He was a prophetic voice that was spoken about over 500 years ago in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. We talked about his act of humbly entering into Jerusalem on a donkey, not a war horse, but a donkey as being a sign of him being our priest, as the one who not just brings peace, but he will enact peace through him dying on the cross for human sin. And lastly, we talked about him being our king as he deliberately received the honor and praise of both the disciples and all of the people that were around him, and how Jesus, every time Jesus comes to Jerusalem, he always stirs up the people to ask the question of life. And that question, as we talked about last week, was this. The people were asking, who is this? And the crowds responded in verse 11 last week, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And now we'll continue on our understanding of this Jesus as being our prophet, priest, and king. And we'll re-examine Jesus' authority over the temple. And we'll do that by looking at three things this morning. We'll look at how we want to remember the timing We want to recognize the temple, and then lastly, we want to reconsider Jesus' temper. Once again, we want to remember the timing, we want to recognize the temple, and then finally, we want to reconsider Jesus' temper. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we do thank you for us another time to be able to preach and proclaim your word, and Father, we acknowledge from the very beginning that we have nothing to say unless you first have said it. So, Father, I pray that you would go before us and you would soften our hearts and our minds to receive what thus says the Lord. God, hide me behind your cross and let your people see you and not me in this moment. God, as always, I ask that you would take my little and make much of it. I don't have much to give, but what I give, would you bless it and would you multiply it? And will you use it to the glory of your name to bless your people and to bless our church and to bless our community, our state, and dare I say, even our nation? by the proclamation of your word at this moment. We praise you and thank you for all the things you're doing in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
So the first thing we want to do as we enter this text is this. We want to remember the timing. Remember, Matthew 21 is unlike any other chapter in Matthew because in Matthew 21, it begins the very last week of Jesus' life. And everything starts to slow down. Everything starts to become more more meaningful than normal, and everything becomes more intentional than what was done previously. In these last couple of weeks, in this last week of Jesus' life, we witnessed Jesus' deliberate attempts to demonstrate that he is the Messiah, the one prophesied to be the Savior of the world. I love what James Boyce says about this in his commentary. He says, up to this point, Jesus had been keeping his messianic claim a secret, lest there be a premature attempt to make him king. And because Jesus was not the kind of king the people wanted, but now knowing that the time of his passion was at hand, Jesus deliberately provoked this demonstration. You see, all four gospels include the incident that we're reading today the cleansing of the temple, although they do vary in timing of the event and also in the significance of the event. According to Matthew, the the gospel that we're reading, the temple cleansing is inconclusive, but it seems to have occurred on the same day when Jesus entered into the temple. According to the gospel of John, John, this was the first time, excuse me, this was not the first time, but this was actually the second time that Jesus had cleansed the temple, according to John chapter 2, verses 14 and 16. But what I want to do today is I want to look at the gospel of Mark. You see, because according to Mark, the cleansing of the temple took place on Monday, the day after the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Mark eleven eleven puts it this way. He says, he went into, he went into Jerusalem and into the temple. And after looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Now, I need you to get the picture. I need you to understand the timing of what's going on right now. Imagine the scene with me, if you will. Thousands have lined the roadway for Jesus' triumphal entry. And as he rode along to the shouts of welcome from the multitudes, he was led right up to the steps of the temple. He entered the temple, as Mark said, and he looked around upon all things and observed all that was going on. He stood off to the side, observing all of the corruption and all of the mishandling of the place that God had constructed to be a place of prayer. And after some time, heartbroken and weary, Jesus left and he returned to Bethany to spend the night there, probably with Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. And then on the next day, on that Monday morning, Jesus arose and went back to that very temple to cleanse it of those who profaned his sacredness. Now, that's really important for us because a lot of times we think of the situation of Jesus having a a Snickers moment. (laughs) My favorite commercials, one of my favorite commercials now is a Snickers commercial when people are acting out of character and somebody say, bro, chill out. You need a Snickers. And they take the Snickers and they come back to their real selves. Anybody know that commercial? In this situation, that's not what's happening with Jesus. It's not like Jesus is just responding 
to the corruption. Because remember, Jesus spent 30 years of preparation for three years of ministry. So this, 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 this corruption that he's seeing had not been up to this, I mean, had, excuse me, was, did not just start it in the last three years that he started to minister. Jesus had seen this corruption and he has observed it and he has grieved over it for almost 30 years during this time. But here's the difference. The difference now is that Jesus is now ready to step into that role and to step into the fulfillment of what it means to be the Messiah. That's the difference that we see here. We have to ask ourselves, why the temple? (laughs) I mean, what's so significant about this temple? What's so sacred about it? What does the temple actually represent? Well, this temple here that Jesus goes to, this temple sat on top of the Mount Zion. And if you know, Jerusalem is also called Mount Zion because Mount Zion was the highest mountain in Jerusalem. And the temple sat on top of the highest mountain, and it was thought to be to cover about 30 acres of land. Now, I've never seen 30 acres of land, but I can't imagine how big that, that would be. My wife grew up on a couple of acres of land. I've seen that. Um, I think even double, like 70 acres. Is that correct? So I think I have a good idea of what this could be, but this was a huge amount of land that we're talking about, 30 acres. Here's an image of the temple of what that could have looked like. You see, the temple consisted of two main parts. It contained the build of the building itself, which contained the holy place or the holy of the holies, which only the high priest could enter its wall once a year during the Day of Atonement. But then it also not just include the building itself, it also included piers, if you will, or, or courtyards, if you will, that went from being an inner court to an outer court. And within an inner court, this is where, in the Jewish mind, that this was the most important area, as it was, because this was the holy of the holies. It was a place in which all of God's most sacred ordinances, his commands, would take place in regards to sacrifice and atonement. And the further you went out into the temple, the more inclusive it became. Let's start in the very center of it. You have the inner court of the priest. The inner court of the priest was, as his name indicates, was only for priests, and they were only allowed to enter there. They included great furnishings of worship. It included the altar of burnt offering. It included the bronze and uh, lavender. It included the seven-branch lampstand, the, the table of showbread, and even the altar of incense. If you move a little further out from the inner court of the priest, then you have the court of the Israelites. The court of the Israelites was only for Jewish worshipers. Both men and women could be there, but they could only be there for joint services on great feast days. This court of the Israelites was actually the place where Jewish worshipers would offer their sacrifices to the priests. This is the inner court, the court of the priests and the court of the Israelites. And then if you go to the outer courts, then you start to become more inclusive. The inner courts was reserved mainly for men. And then as you get to the outer courts, now you have the court of the women. And as the name indicates, women were limited to this area except for special occasions for worship. And women were allowed to enter the court of the the Israelites only to offer sacrifices or to, again, to worship on feast days. And then you get to the very outer court. You get to the court that we're going to talk about today, the court of the Gentiles. This court was the last court and thereby 
seemingly the least important court. And it covered a vast space surrounding all the other courtyards, and it was used as a place of worship for all Gentiles who converted to Judaism. Notice the court of the Gentiles was the farthest removed from the center of worship. Notice that it was also in the court of the Gentiles where so much commercialism had taken place. (laughs) I know this is maybe a shock to us. And even as we think about it, it's like, man, how can the house of God become a house of profiteering? How can a house of prayer and, and praise and worship, a place that's sacred to God, become a place of the world? I love what Claire Christie says in Layman's Bible book commentary. She offers this advice. She says, worshipers need animals and other items for their sacrifice and offerings. Pilgrims from foreign nations needed money exchanged. At some point in the history of the temple, the priests had decided to take advantage of the market themselves instead of letting retailers on the outside reap all the profits. So the priests began to set up booths within the courts of the Gentiles to lease out space to outside retailers. The owners of the booths or space was the high priest or Aeneas, and the atmosphere was one of commercial traffic and commotion, not of worship and prayer. Look with me in verses 12 through 15. Notice how many times... Matthew, the author of this book, notice how many times he mentions the word temple. Notice with me in verse 10. He says, Jesus went into the temple. Now, again, this is, this is not, again, this is not just a random time. Jesus had always been at the temple. He grew up at the temple. He went there as a boy at 12 years old, and his parents left on, and, and going back home to Bethlehem, and he stayed there because he absolutely loved the temple, and he was teaching in the temple. What Matthew is trying to get us to understand is not just that Jesus went to the temple, but as our prophet, priest, or king, the first place of his destination, the first place that he wanted to visit was the temple of God. This is a good reminder for us, and it's a good encouragement for us, that when Jesus entered Jerusalem, he didn't go to the palace of the kings, nor the courts of the rulers, but he went up to the temple of God. He went to the house of God. He went up to the temple as God to cleanse it and to teach men how the temple was and is to be used. It's a good reminder for us as a church today that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. It's not just physical, but it is of heaven and it is a spiritual kingdom. And his authority and his rule were in the temple of God and also in the hearts of men. I love what 1 Peter 4, 17 talks about. It says, for the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of Christ? So check this out. As our prophet, as our prophet, the the foretold Messiah, as our prophet, Jesus became angry at what he saw. And he thereby drove out the merchants and overturned the money changers table. And in doing so, he fulfilled 
actually a lot of different prophecies within the Old Testament. The first thing that in cleansing the temple, Jesus fulfilled the messianic prophecy found in Malachi 3, 1 and 3, which says these words, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver till they present right offerings to the Lord. In his cleansing out of the temple, he combined two references from the Old Testament. One in Isaiah 56, 7, where God declares that his house will be called a house of prayer for all peoples and or nations. And also Jeremiah 7, 11, when God, through the prophet of Jeremiah, used the words den of robbers to describe what his house had become. In other words, Jesus saw the clamor of buying and selling combined with the cheating of the people, and he was angered that the temple no longer fulfilled its purpose. As, and as being the place it, it was not intended to be, namely a place of worship and prayer. I love what Tony Evans says about this in his study Bible. He says these words, he says, in the temple in Jerusalem, pilgrims would come to offer sacrifice They could buy animals from those selling them as well as exchange currency with money changers. And instead of a place focused on worship of the one true and living God, the temple had become a place of materialism and commercialism. Tell me this. Raise your hand if you've seen this movie before. I'm talking to kids right now. So kids, hey, I know you guys haven't been paying attention, but that's okay. Tell me if you've seen this movie before. Anybody seen this movie? Anybody love this movie? I love this movie too. It's one of my favorite movies. And uh, I love it for a lot of different reasons. Really quick, tell me, raise your hand if your favorite character in a movie is fear. Ooh, I got one. Okay, that's good. You can, you can have multiple answers here. Tell me joy. Everybody loves joy. Come on, come on. Yeah, oh yeah. Everybody loves joy. How about disgust? Yeah? Okay. How about sadness? Yeah? That's, that's relatable in COVID-19. Amen. It's, it's a lot of sadness is going on. How about anger? Yes, this is mine. I, I love this character, especially when he gets angry and he just takes control. And he just puts the lever up and his hair just comes out. And it just has this, he has this fire fro, if you will, that just is out of control. See, a lot of times in life we see, I love this movie because it's so good and about our different emotions. And I love it because it teaches us and it teaches us as, even as a people of God to embrace our emotions. We're not just emotionless people. We're not just people who just go through the world without thinking and feeling and experiencing different things. And in this point of the passage, we see Jesus. It seems like Jesus has finally allowed this anger character in his heart to take control. And it seems like Jesus has just said, okay, I'm done with all the niceness. Here's my wrath. Here's my anger. And he starts flipping tables. I think there's a better way for us to look at this. I think within this occurrence of Jesus cleansing the temple, we notice and we witness five things that incited Jesus' anger. The first thing we see in verse 12 is that the temple, or the church, if you will, was not to be a place where people were to be exploited. The temple was not to be a place where people are to be exploited. We find that in verse 12. Verse 13, we see that the temple was to be a house of prayer. Verse 14, we see that the temple was to be a place for ministry. 
Verse 15, we see that the temple was to be a place where wonderful things were to happen or be done. And then lastly, in verses 15 and 16, we see that the temple was a place where Christ was to be praised. Notice with me three things as we go into the text. Notice with me what caused Jesus to get angry. Notice with me who made him angry. And finally, notice with me why did Jesus get so angry? Let's look at the first question together. What caused him to get angry? As we saw this time and time again, Jesus saw the clamor of buying and selling. He saw it um, combined with the cheating of the people. And he saw that the temple had not fulfilled its purpose of being called and being seen as being a house of prayer. This is a good reminder for us that Jesus cares for the exploitation of his people. Amen. Notice where this is. Notice where Jesus gets upset. (laughs) He doesn't have to go to the Holy of Holies. He doesn't have to go to the court of the Israelites. He doesn't even have to go to the court of the women. Jesus just goes to the very first court, the court of the Gentiles, and it incites anger in him and frustration. I love this because it's a good reminder for us as a church that how we treat people matters to God. Amen? He didn't have to go to the very holiest place to see that this place was corrupt. This, This community will learn more about us how we treat them than how we try to preach to them. How we engage with people matter. And it's not about them just talking about Jesus and preaching Jesus to them. It's learning how to be a living embodiment of the Christ that we proclaim to a broken world. Jesus went to the court of the Gentiles and he was frustrated. What would Jesus be frustrated about our church? How do we accept people who don't look like us or don't act like us or don't have what we have. You know what what my prayer is for our church? My prayer is that we'll have an empty parking lot every single Sunday. And the reason why is because we have so many people from this community coming in that nobody has to drive to, to come to church. They can simply just open their door and walk 20 steps and come. That's what I want to see. I don't want to see a full parking lot because that means it took you about 20 minutes to get here. I want to see an empty parking lot with, with the church full of people from this community who we, and, and they come not because of just the God that we preach, but they come because of the God that we exhibit and we exemplify in our relationship with them and our local community. How you treat people matters. And Jesus simply went to the very court of the Gentiles. He went to the very edge. He went to the very edge of the community and he noticed the dysfunction from there. It didn't matter if they were sacrificing right. It didn't matter if they were praising right. It didn't matter if they were preaching right. The only thing that mattered to Jesus in that moment was that you were exploiting the people whom you should be caring for. That's a word for us today. So what did Jesus do? Look with me in verse 15. He chased out all those who were buying and selling. He threw over the tables of the money changers. He threw over the chairs of the, of the dove dealers. Jesus is always associated with the suffering of his people. You remember his words in Exodus 3, 9? 
when he approached Moses with the audacious task of taking his people from the most powerful nation at that time, the nation of Egypt. And he says these words, now be, and now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with, with, with which the Egyptians have oppressed them. Notice when, when, when Jesus himself confronts Saul and his sin on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, verses 3 and 5. And it says these words, as he traveled and he was nearing Damascus, a heaven from light suddenly shot, flashed around him and falling to the ground, Saul heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul, Paul, uh, Saul responded saying, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus, the one who you are persecuting. See, Jesus closely associates with the suffering. He closely associates with the pain. He closely associates with the anguish of his people. So we see now what made Jesus angry. Let's notice our second point, who made Jesus angry? Who made him angry? There are three people who made him angry in this text. Number one, those who abuse their power and authority within God's temple. Those people anger God, anger Christ. Number two, those who exploited the intended purpose of the temple. They turned the place of worship into a place of commercialism. And then lastly, those who made it impossible for the nations to truly worship God. You want to know what makes God angry? These are the things that make God angry. Taking power and authority within his church as if it's your own. That makes him angry. Exploiting and using the purposes of the sanctuary for your own personal benefit, that makes God angry. And then lastly, making it impossible, or maybe not impossible, but very difficult, making it uncomfortable for the nations to truly worship God. We're planted as a church with, with, with values that are very simple, and hopefully everybody knows those values, but one of those values is multi-ethnicity. And either, you know what I love about that value? Either that value is going to encourage people to come, or it's going to dissuade people to leave. You cannot stand indifferent with multi-ethnicity. And I want you to know from the very beginning, this is what we're about. And we're not just about it because James Fields is about it. We're about it for two reasons. One, because it matters to God. And two, because our community reflects the beauty and the uniqueness of the kingdom of God. And if we are to, if we are to find success, if we are to see what it means to be a successful church, it's not just us about us preaching right and teaching right. That matters. Don't get me wrong. It's not just about us raising money and, and having a, 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 a fish fries. Don't get me wrong. I love a good fish fry. But what matters is how we and why we engage with the things that most matter to God. And by the power of God and by the grace of God, as your pastor, we're going to be focused on the things that matter to God as best we can to his glory. I love what James chapter 1, 27 says. It says this. It says, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep on oneself unstained from the world. 
I love this. Notice what God says. Orphans and widows, those who have a very hard time caring for themselves, those who may feel isolated or neglected in our world, those who may not have someone to to love them or provide for them, and those people matter. And Jesus, God, and through the Holy, the power of the Holy Spirit, and through the prophetic word of James, uh, Jesus' brother, he says, "Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is to look after those who can't look after themselves." So we notice why Jesus got angry. We notice who made him angry. And lastly, notice why was Jesus so angry? He was angry for two reasons. He was angry because the temple was to be a house of prayer for all nations. The temple, the church of God, should be a prayer for all people. All should be welcome into God's house, both Jew and Gentile. All should be able to worship in quietness and to have a place of peace within God's temple. No one should be barred, no one should be separated, and no one should be discouraged from worshiping God in his holy temple. Amen? Love what Romans 2, 11 says about this. It says, for God shows no favoritism. Another version puts it this way. It says, for God shows no partiality. I love how the New American Standard Version says, it says, for there is no partiality with God. And if you want to get get honest with it. We got to go to King James Version. I love the King James. That's my favorite version. It says, I know it's yours too, Harold, so that's why I put it up there. King James Version says, for there is no respect of persons with God. I love that. It's a good reminder for us that there's no partiality with God, and there should be no partiality with us as his people. So the temple, why was he angry? The temple was to be a house of prayer for all people. And number two, the temple was not to be used for commercial purposes. The temple was the house of God, not a house of profiteering. It was not to be profaned as a place of buying and selling, marketing, retailing, stealing, and or cheating. But the temple was the house of God. It it was to be a house of prayer. It was to be a place of sanctity, a place that was refined and purified by God himself. It was to be a place of quietness and sweet meditation. It's to be a place set aside for worship, not for buying and selling where man gets gain. It's a good reminder for us as a church that no one should have dibs on the, char- on the church except for God. Nobody on the, should, should have dibs on the church except for God. I know everyone don't understand what dibs are, so let me rephrase what I'm saying. What I'm saying here is that God is creator of all, and Jesus is the Lord over the church, and therefore the only one who, who should have his way in the church is Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? Love how Colossians 1 puts it. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heavens and on earth, the visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the church, the body. He is the beginning, the first burn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. See, Jesus not only cleansed God's house as our prophet, he also healed it 
as our priest. Look with me in verse 14. It says, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Notice, as we talked about this temple, notice how Matthew emphasizes the temple in verse 12. Jesus went into the temple. Verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him. Where did they come to him? In the temple. See, the temple was to be a place of ministry. And Jesus saw the temple as being a place for ministry, and thereby he demonstrated that it was to be a place of ministry for all men without favoritism, without preference, or without preferential treatment. So Jesus takes the time to heal these men. I got to ask you a question. What prevented them from being healed before now? (laughs) Why couldn't these men get healed? Notice with me, as Jesus' anger ensues and he cleanses out the temple, it allows ministry to actually take place. That the anger of God, the, 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 the righteous anger of God made a pathway for ministry to actually happen. Sometimes in our lives, things don't happen in our lives not because we're too angry. Sometimes it happens because we don't get angry at all. <laughs> there are some things that are happening in your life that you should have righteous indignation over. There are some, you, you can't be happy with everything. You can't be complacent with everything. There are things in your life that God wants to incite a righteous indignation to cause effectual change in your life that will lead you to an everlasting relationship with him and intimacy with him. Some of our problems is that y'all ain't angry enough. We'll talk about this here in in a few seconds, but anger is not wrong. What's wrong is using our anger to justify one's sin. That's what's wrong. See, when Jesus cleanses the temple, worshipers are not able to come to Christ to worship him and their needs are met. Verse 14, the the blind men are healed. The lame men are healed. When Jesus cleanses the temple, Christ was able to take his rightful position within the temple. He was able to become the preeminent figure and to receive the worship and minister to those whom had needs. Notice with me in verse 15. It says, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did and the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of God, they were indignant. Notice this word in verse 15, wonders. Your version or your Bible may say wonderful things. It may not say wonders. But this is a very, very important word for us because this is the only time in all of the New Testament that this word is used within this passage of story. The only time it's used is right here. And it's a good reminder for us that the temple is supposed to be where God does wonderful things. This word, this Greek word of wonderful things, it refers to all things that Christ was doing in the temple. All things that he was doing could only be described by one word, wonderful. It's a good reminder and a good notice for us. Notice with me that the temple is supposed to be where wonderful things are done for God. 
It's a good reminder for us also that the church is the only living organism that's left within our society that solely exists to glorify God. Not government, not Wall Street, not our judicial system, not our legislative system, not the Democratic Party, not the Republican Party, not Black Lives Matter. The only organism that's left within our society that solely exists to glorify God is his church. See, Jesus not only healed as our priest, he also was worshiped as a king. Look with me in verse 15. The chief priests and scribes saw the wonders that he did and the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the highest, and they were indignant and said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus replied, yes, have you never heard? You have prepared praise from the mouth of infants and nursing babes. You see, intentionally or not, the children in the temple rightly proclaimed Jesus as being the Messiah. You see, while the chief priests and the scribes asked Jesus, and notice the question they ask him. The chief priests and the scribes asked Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? So the chief priests and the scribes are not ignorant of what's going on right now. They understand that as the children are shouting and as they are declaring Jesus, they're doing more than just giving honor to a person. They are recognizing him as the Messiah. Listen to Psalm 8, verses 1 and 2. This is undeniable. that There is no way that they could not associate Jesus with Yahweh. Psalm 8, verses 1 and 2 says this. It says, Lord, our Lord, how magnificent in your name throughout all the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. <laughs> Notice with me how Jesus welcomed praise and worship as God. He's not, he's, not, he's not denying it. He's not denouncing it. He's not deflecting it. Jesus is worshiping. He is welcoming, welcoming praise and worship as God himself. And Jesus used Psalm 2 to show these religious leaders how they were wrong. This goes back to what the theme that we've been seeing all throughout Matthew, that those who shouldn't get the identity of my Messiah actually do. Those who shouldn't understand, those who have been ostracized by the, by the society, the Gentiles and children and the lame and the blind, the, the poor and the marginalized, the people whom society has counted out are actually counted in by God because they recognize and they understand who Jesus is. And while these religious leaders with all of their education and all of their riches and all of their power and all of their authority and all their prestige and all their accolades and everything that makes them somebody within this world, these chief and scribes with all of that prestige still couldn't see the most important thing for them to see. That this man who was standing before them was the Messiah. Yet children who are often pushed aside, children who are often forgotten, children who are often abused, children who are often neglected, children who are usually not seen as being important or having a voice, they are the ones who give God the praise. So we've 
We've remembered the timing. We recognize the importance of the temple. Now, lastly, I just want to reconsider the temper. You know, anger is often defined as an attempt to solve a problem by seizing control. Anger is defined as an attempt to solve a problem by seizing control. And I want you to know, and I want you to hear me loudly and clear, that anger is not the problem. Using our anger to justify our sin is the problem. Ephesians 4.26 says it this way. It says, be angry and do not sin. You see, Jesus did flip tables in the temple, but he also did grieve deeply over the sin that made it necessary for him to flip those tables. Look, with, look uh, in your own personal study. Go to Matthew 23, 37 for more insight on that. And church, I want you to know one thing. I want you to know that anger with no tears over evil is an often evidence of a lack of love within us. Anger with no tears over evil is often evidence of a lack of love in us. So we have to ask ourselves, was Jesus' anger justified? As we said it already, there are two types of anger in this world, right? There's unrighteous anger. And unrighteous anger is simply using one's anger to justify sin. Its focus is on you and its focus is on righting what's wrong. It is usually being angry at a person or usually at an outcome. And it's usually accompanied by merciless acts. And it usually leads to shame, distrust, and even condemnation. But here's where it lacks. Unrighteous anger lacks in an opportunity for restoration, for reconciliation, or even redemption. Unrighteous anger is known by what it produces. I love what John Bloom and his article, Why, uh, How Can We Be Angry and Not Sin? He says this. He says, anger rooted in our, our sin nature produces quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, gossip, conceit, and disorder. It produces enmity, strife, fits of anger, i.e. tantrums, rivalries, dissensions, and even divisions. What it produces is what we see in Galatians 5.20, which Paul describes as the works of the flesh. You see, when you are angry and you allow that angry moment to justify any and everything you do from that point on, that's not of God. I have a right to respond this way because I am angry. If you think about that from that standpoint, that is not a biblical understanding of what right of what anger, how anger should be used in our life. But 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 beloved, there is a better way. There is a better way that we can look to. It's called righteous anger. And righteous anger is using one's anger to justify righteousness. Its focus is not on you, its focus is always on God. And instead of righting what's, what was, excuse me, instead of wronging what's right, his focus is on righting what's wrong. 
It is being angry at the things that makes God angry and responding to them in a way that God will have you to respond. It is anger that is a byproduct of righteousness and is usually accompanied by acts of mercy and it usually leads to compassion. And just as unrighteous anger is known by what it produces, righteous anger is also known by what it portrays. Listen to what John Bloom says in this, uh, is the same article. He says these words, he says, righteous anger doesn't look or feel like sinful anger because godly righteous anger is governed and directed by love. God is righteous, but he's also love. And love is patient. Notice with me what angers Jesus and then finally what, notice, what, what angers these religious leaders. See, what angers Jesus is that the temple was used in a way in which it never was supposed to be. God's standard is here. The reality, God's standard is here. Our reality is here. And therefore, God is angered by that disparity, by that gap. And he allows that anger to remind us of the standard that God has always given us and the standard that God has put before us. And then he calls us to in every way life. I'm reminded of a story of a couple who goes to a marriage counselor for help in their marriage. And after sharing the most intimate details, conversation and disagreements, the counselor looks at the couple and says these words. The counselor says this, my main concern is not the presence of anger in your life. My main concern is the lack thereof. The counselor says, I I am concerned that you have become complacent with the welfare of your marriage and you will and you, excuse me, and you will and you, excuse me, and you cannot change until you get angry enough to do so. Beloved, I want you to consider this question. Are you angry enough to affect real change in your life? Are you angry enough? And I'm not talking about righteous, unrighteous anger where you get angry and you just, anything goes because you're angry. I'm saying, are you angry enough at your sin and the dysfunction and the brokenness of this world and in your life that you look to God as the only way to truly be healed? And I'm not talking about just doing it on today on Sunday. I'm saying every single day, denying yourself, taking up your cross and following Jesus. Not some book. Not some preacher. What a preacher. Following Jesus every day of your life. Realizing that the cross you bear, you don't have to bear alone. Remember, anger can be used by God to affect positive change within your life. And notice, we should get angry at the things that matter to God. In this text today, Matthew gives us five reasons to get angry as a Christian. Number one, the temple was not to be a place where people were to be exploited. Verse 12, 
Number two, the temple was to be a house of prayer, verse 13. Number three, the temple was to be a place for ministry, verse 14. Number four, the temple was to be a place where wonderful things were done in the name of God, verse 15. And finally, number five, the temple was to be a place where Christ is praised, verses 15 and 16. Will you pray with me? Father, we do thank you and we praise you for being a God who loves us and pursues us in our brokenness. Thank you, God, that you have shown us what it means to truly be angry and not yet not sin. Father, help us. Help us, Lord, to be honest with our emotions of where we are and not to allow our emotions to control us, but to allow your Holy Spirit to control us. That is only done by a work of your spirit. That is only done by the work of having the the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, transforming us, changing us, renewing us into the image of Jesus. Father, we need that today as a church. Father, I pray that you would incite within us righteous anger where it needs to be incited. And I ask also that you would help us to not just look to you, but look to our spouses and even our children if we need to, where we have allowed fits of unrighteous anger to rule our house and our home and even our very hearts. Father, we thank you that you give us space to have emotions, but yet have those emotions redeemed through the blood of Christ. May we look to you anew and afresh as our God and King, not just of this world, but even of our emotions. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.